Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Monday, April 3rd, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. Israeli airstrikes in Syria killed two Iranian IRGC members. So two members of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, that's the IRGC, were killed in Israeli airstrikes that targeted the Syrian capital of Damascus on Friday. So the IRGC announced Friday, and I covered these airstrikes when they the news first broke, uh, but then later on Friday, the IRGC announced that one military officer and advisor named Milad Haidari was killed in the Israeli attacks. And then on Sunday, they announced that another IRGC officer, Mektad Magani Jafarbadi, succumbed to his wounds. So two were killed as a result of the strike. The IRGC said in a statement on Sunday, quote, Jafar Abadi, a member of the Revolutionary Guards, was wounded in a criminal attack of the Zionist regime on Friday and was martyred due to the severity of his injuries, end quote. So the IRGC also vowed revenge for the deaths of their officers. They said, quote, the crimes of the Zionist regime will not go unanswered and they will pay for this, end quote. So Iranian Foreign Ministry spokesman Nasser Kanani also said that Tehran would respond. So the Israeli killings of these IRGC members, it came after the U.S. military said that it planned to target the Quds Force, which is a branch of the IRGC. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, told Congress this, this past Wednesday that the U.S. will start targeting the Quds Force very harshly, was how he put it. And the Pentagon claimed that they hit Quds Force facilities in Syria following that recent drone attack on a U.S. base that killed a contractor. The Pentagon said that eight militants were killed in the strikes, although they said none were Iranian. So you have the U.S. claiming attacks on the IRGC's Quds Force, but saying that they didn't actually kill any, that they killed militants uh, that weren't Iranian. And then for their part, Iran denies that the U.S. did hit Iranian facilities, said that they had civilian targets. Uh, but when it comes to Israel, Israel has really stepped up its airstrikes in Syria, and they actually launched even more on Saturday, which marked the third uh, their third airstrikes of the week. They just kept launching them. And the ones on Saturday targeted the central province of Homs, and that wounded at least five Syrian soldiers, according to Syrian media. So all this comes as, you know, Netanyahu is facing this political crisis at home over his planned judicial overhaul. Maybe he's trying to really escalate things with Iran to distract from that. I don't know. And you also have the U.S., that escalation in Syria, threatening to target the IRGC. And of course, we know that they coordinate with Israel. So maybe the U.S. is involved in this somehow or kind of gave Israel the green light to step up their airstrikes in Syria uh, it's tough to say exactly what's happening here, but this does risk a pretty big escalation, uh, especially if the airstrikes keep up. So who knows what the next step is going to be, what Iran might do in response. And of course, earlier in March, it, you know, it wasn't just these three airstrikes in this week. I believe it was six total or maybe five in the month of March, because then the ones on Saturday were in April. 
But earlier in March, Israel twice bombed Syria's Aleppo airport, putting it out of service. You know, that was after the earthquake and these aid flights were going into that airport. So just relentless Israeli attacks on Syria. And, you know, they always claim that they're targeting Iran in Syria, but they very rarely kill Iranians. So this is a big deal that they did. And we have the confirmation from the IRGC. All right, the next one here, Saudi Arabia to invite Syria's Assad to the Arab League summit. So this is according to Reuters. They reported that Saudi Arabia is planning to invite Syrian President Bashar al-Assad to an Arab League summit Riyadh is hosting in May. So this would be a pretty big deal. This would be a significant step in the normalization of Syria's relations with regional countries. So Damascus was suspended from the Arab League in 2011, and many of the bloc's members supported the failed regime change effort against Assad, including, of course, Saudi Arabia. And the news comes after Syria's foreign minister visited Egypt for the first time in over a decade. So that was on Saturday that Syria's foreign minister went to Egypt. Egypt's foreign minister was just recently in Syria for, again, the first time uh, in a long time. And an Egyptian security source told Reuters that the purpose of the visit of Syria's visit to Egypt was to work toward Syria rejoining the Arab League, which is based in Cairo, through Saudi and Egyptian mediation. So Syria and Saudi Arabia have also been holding talks on reestablishing ties, and they're expected soon to resume formal diplomatic relations, which have also been suspended since 2011. So this is all big moves here in the region. And of course, this comes after the Saudi-Iran normalization deal. It's more diplomacy that the U.S. is not involved in at all. The U.S. is being you know, left out of all this, and they're not happy about it. The U.S. is very against regional countries normalizing with Syria as it prefers to keep the country isolated and under crippling economic sanctions. And of course, the U.S. is occupying about one-third of Syria's territory. So all of this, you know, this might turn into this, the regional countries, it, the U.S.'s Arab allies pressuring the U.S. to kind of end this uh, Syria policy, you know, change course here on the sanctions and the, and the occupation. I know according to the Wall Street Journal, there's some deal in the works between the Arab countries, well, Syria's an Arab country, but the other Arab countries, you know, the, in the Arab League on kind of an opening up with Syria, they, they want some concessions from Assad. And I know one of the things that the Saudis said that they would do in return is lobby the U.S. to lift sanctions on Syria. So it is possible that they might get some pressure here, uh, you know, from regional countries, maybe Jordan as well. Um, so when it comes to Turkey, Turkey's really the big one. If if the the Turks and and the Syrians work things out, that can have a big impact on uh, what the U.S. presence in. Uh, in Syria, because in Turkey, I mean, Turkey doesn't want the U.S. there supporting the Kurds on their border anyway. But if they strike a deal with Damascus, I mean, the U.S. is just going to be in the way of, of they're already in the way. But if, if Turkey and Syria start getting along, then they're going to want them out of there. You know, the Kurds might even want the U.S. out of there at that point if the Syrian government guarantees that they could provide security against tur more Turkish incursions. Um, but again, these are all big moves, big things happening in the Middle East, changing the dynamic. And I don't think the U.S. is going to be too happy about how this goes. All right, the next one here, a Russian journalist killed in a St. Petersburg blast. 
So a prominent Russian military blogger and war correspondent was killed in an explosion in St. Petersburg on Sunday. According to Russian media, Maxim Fomin, who went by the name of Vladlin Tatarsky, so that was his, uh, the, that's how he's known as Tatarsky. He was hosting an event at a cafe in the Russian city of St. Petersburg when an explosion killed him and wounded at least 19 others. So Tatarsky was known for his extensive coverage of the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, he had a big following on Telegram. He did videos. And he previously fought for the Donbass militias of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics following the 2014 U.S.-backed coup in Kiev that ousted former President Viktor Yanukovych. So he was over there fighting in the Donbass for a few years. He later left military service and became a war correspondent. Uh, he went to the front lines early on in the war. You know, he's a supporter of the war. I think he's been critical of the Russian government um, and, you know, in their war. But again, he's a pretty, I think, influential Russian military blogger who really uh, followed the war closely. And according to Russian law enforcement, they're saying that he was the intended target of the attack. So it was a targeted killing of this uh, guy, Tatarsky. So a spokesman for Russian law enforcement agencies said, quote, the, make, the makeshift explosive device that went off in a St. Petersburg cafe was stuffed with striking elements. The target was war correspondent Vladlin Tukarsky, end quote. So the spokesman said that the explosives was about the size of a soap bar and was hidden in a figurine that was presented to Tatarsky in the cafe. So it was handed to him. And then I guess it exploded right in his hand. So he was the only one that was killed, but it looks like a lot of other people were injured. And, you know, more the death toll could go up. Um, it's not clear what kind of condition the people that were wounded are in. But this incident, it marks the second high-profile assassination inside Russia since the invasion was launched last year. In August 2022, Daria Dugina, the daughter of the prominent Russian philosopher, Alexander Dugan, she was killed in a car bombing outside of Moscow. So the New York Times later reported that the U.S. believes the Ukrainian government was behind Dugina's killing, uh, although Kiev officially denies involvement, but the U.S. is saying that they think the Ukrainians did it. And they're naturally uh, a suspect in this latest Tatarsky assassination, uh, Mikhailo Podolyak, he's an advisor to Zelensky, the Ukrainian president. He suggested on Twitter that the assassination was the result of domestic strife inside Russia and kind of a strange tweet. He wrote, quote, it begins. Spiders are eating each other in a jar. Question of when domestic terrorism would become an instrument of internal political fight was a matter of time, end quote. And I know, you know, Porolyak and other Ukrainian officials kind of make vague comments about other types of attacks and sabotage that have been going on in Russia, um, acting like it's internal forces when it is likely, you know, Ru Ukrainian intelligence. Um, we don't know, you know, not clear yet who, who's responsible for this Tatarsky killing, but I've, I'm sure some things will come out to make it more clear. Uh, all right, the next one here, Blinken and Lavrov discuss the Wall Street Journal reporter who was detained in Russia. So Blinken on Sunday held a call with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, to discuss Evan Gershkovich, 
who's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal and a U.S. citizen who was detained in Russia last week over spying allegations. So according to a State Department readout of the call, Blinken expressed the U.S.'s, quote, grave concern over Russia's unacceptable detention of a U.S. citizen journalist, end quote, and called for his immediate release. So according to the Russian side, Lavrov told Blinken that a Russian court will decide Gershkovich's fate. The Russian foreign ministry said, quote, in light of the established evidence of the U.S. nationals' illegal activities, his future will be determined by court, end quote. So according to Russia's Federal Security Service, the FSB, they claimed that Gershkovich, quote, was acting at the behest of the American side, collected information constituting a state secret about the activities of an enterprise within Russia's military industrial complex, end quote. And the Wall Street Journal and the U.S. government have strongly denied the Russian allegations. In his call with Lavrov, Blinken also raised the issue of Paul Wellen, who is a former U.S. Marine who was arrested on spying charges in Moscow in 2018. The State Department said that the two diplomats also discussed, quote, the importance of creating an environment that permits diplomatic missions to carry out their work, end quote. You know, over the past few years, you know, starting under the Obama administration, the U.S. started kicking out a lot of Russian diplomats from embassies and whittling down their embassy staff. That was kind of a diplomatic war that's been going on. You know, Russia would respond. Um, and that, you know, the closing consulates in, in different cities and stuff. So diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Russia have been on the, the, the decline pretty seriously for years. And, of course, Blinken is just a, a totally failed uh, diplomat. This is only the third time that he's spoken with Lavrov, with his Russian counterpart, since Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th, 2022. And the last time they talked was for a brief 10-minute chat on the sidelines of a G20 meeting in New Delhi at the beginning of March. So I think that shows that they don't actually want to end this war. I mean, Blinken, again, he's supposed to be, he's the Secretary of State. He's supposed to be the country's top diplomat. Uh, he says, you know, he wants Russia to end the war, but he hasn't really tried at all. He hasn't put any effort into, to, you know, seeking a diplomatic solution with Russia. Um, three, three talks with Lavrov. None of them were about the war in Ukraine, according to him, about a ceasefire or anything like that. Um, so it just goes to show the priorities of the administration. All right, the next one here, Russia to put nukes near Belarus's western border. So the Russian ambassador to Belarus, Boris Grizlov, said on Sunday that Russian tactical nuclear weapons will be placed in western Belarus near its border with NATO members. So according to AP, Grizlov said that the nuclear weapons will be moved up close to the western border of what they call the Union State which refers to the combined territories of Russia and Belarus. Belarus neighbors Poland, Latvia, and Lithuania, making the country's border with NATO territory nearly 800 miles. So it has a lot of NATO uh, territory on its western border there. And you have this Russian envoy saying, yep, the nukes are going to go you know, in that direction. And Griv's Lov's comments come after Putin announced that he will be deploying tactical nukes to Belarus in response to the UK providing Ukraine with depleted uranium ammunition for its British-made tanks. The Russian leader said that a facility to store the weapons should be completed by July 1st. So Lukashenko, the Belarusian president, 
He said on Friday that Russia might also deploy strategic nuclear weapons, which have a much higher nuclear yield than tactical nukes. Lukashenko said, quote, Putin and I will decide and introduce here, if necessary, strategic weapons, and they must understand this. The scoundrels abroad who who today are trying to blow us up from inside and out, end quote. So tactical nukes, when it comes to how big they are, I've seen a lot of different ranges, um, but I believe it's between 0.3 and 170 kilotons. That's the nuclear yield. And to give you an example, the the bomb that the U.S. dropped on Hiroshima was 15 kilotons. So even, you know, tactical nuclear weapons can be much bigger than the bombs that the U.S. dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Nagasaki, I think, was 21 it was slightly more, um, but strategic nukes, they can go over a thousand kilotons, over a megaton. Uh, so they're just huge. And you think about all the people they could kill. Uh, but the U.S. has about 100 B-61 tactical nuclear bombs that are deployed in Europe. So the U.S. already has tactical nukes deployed in Europe. And this is under NATO's nuclear sharing program. And when justifying his decision to send nukes to Belarus, Putin pointed to this nuclear sharing program. He said that the U.S., they've been doing this forever. Um, It's no different than what the U.S. does. And right now there are U.S., these tactical nukes in Italy, Germany, Turkey, Belgium, and the Netherlands. Um, And there's definitely a chance that NATO responds to this by sending nukes further east. They haven't put nukes in countries that have joined NATO after the end of the Cold War. But I know Poland is very eager to host nuclear weapons. And Finland, they're joining. Their politicians have said they're open to it. They haven't ruled it out. And that's on Russia's border. So, you know, things can get very hairy, especially now that there's no uh, nuclear arms control between the U.S. and Russia. All right, the next one here, a Ukrainian official outlines his vision for Crimea. So on Sunday, a senior Ukrainian official outlined his vision for what Kiev would do if it retakes the Crimean Peninsula from Russia. So Russia annexed Crimea following the 2014 U.S.-backed coup in Kiev. um, And polling has shown since that the majority of the people living in Crimea are happy that they're part of the Russian Federation. But Ukrainian officials um, are determined, you know, saying that they're going to liberate Crimea. And this is Oleksiy Danilov. He is the secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council. He said that if Ukraine takes Crimea, Crimea back that people who have worked for the post-2014 post administration in Crimea should be prosecuted. He said they should face criminal charges and be banned from holding public positions. So these are just people that work for the government in some capacity. And he's also saying that any Russians who moved to Crimea after 2014 must be expelled. And he called for a dismantling of the Kerch Bridge, which connects the peninsula to the Russian mainland. And of course, the Kerch Bridge was attacked in a truck bombing in October 2022. So while Danilov and other Ukrainian officials maintain that retaking Crimea is one of their war goals, the Pentagon has said that the prospect is unlikely. Russia controls territory to the north of the peninsula that Ukrainian forces would need to push through first before threatening to take Crimea. And it's not clear if Kiev has the capability to launch a counteroffensive. That's what the U.S. wants them to do. But Zelensky has said, you know, they need more weapons. And other Ukrainian officials speaking anonymously to the media have said that they can't, that they don't have the resources really to launch a counteroffensive. They're just trying to defend Bakhmut. 
and there is fighting elsewhere, but mainly in Bakhmut. Um, but anyway, uh, when it comes to Crimea, even though the U.S. does not think Ukraine can retake Crimea, the Biden administration has said that it supports attacks on the peninsula despite the risk of escalation. Putin has shown that he will significantly escalate in response to attacks on Crimea. When they bombed the Kerch Bridge, that's when he started bombing infrastructure, energy infrastructure across Ukraine. Russia didn't do that before October 2022, and they started doing it after the Kerch Bridge bombing, and it became a pretty common thing. All right, uh, the next one here, Ukraine places Orthodox priest leader under house arrest. So a Kiev court on Saturday ordered the house arrest of Metropolitan Pavel. He is a Ukrainian Orthodox priest who is the head monk at the historic Pech Ersk Lavra Monastery. So Pavel is suspected of justifying Russia's invasion, which apparently is a criminal offense in Ukraine. Just saying that you support it or justifying or giving reasons for it, maybe. I'm not sure exactly what qualifies as a crime. But he has denied the allegations saying that he had never been on the side of aggression. So after a court hearing on Saturday, a monitoring bracement, sorry, bracelet was placed on Pavel's ankle despite his objections, and the allegations against him were made by the Security Service of Ukraine, the SBU, and SBU agents raided the priest's home. So this arrest is part of a broader crackdown against the Ukrainian Orthodox Church by the government of Zelensky. And so this is the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which has historic ties to Russia, but they did denounce the war and cut ties with Moscow following the invasion. But those steps weren't enough for the Ukrainian government. Other priests have been arrested and sanctioned as part of the crackdown. Houses and churches raided. Pavel's house arrest comes as Kiev is trying to evict UOC priests from the Petrovsk Lavra, which is known as the Monastery of the Caves in English. So those priests are still there. Their eviction notice, they, they were told to leave by this past Wednesday, uh, but they are refusing to go anywhere. There's a lot of protests. Uh, supporters, worshipers that support the priests came out. There was some scuffles around the monastery. It doesn't seem like anybody was really hurt. Nothing major yet. So they're still in there. You know, Zelensky hasn't set and sent anybody in to, you know, forcibly clear them out yet. But here they're cracking down, uh, putting this, the priest who's, who's the head priest over there on house arrest. Um, all right. So the last one, the last news story here, Israeli judicial overhaul protests continue despite the pause. So protests against Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's judicial overhaul showed no signs of abating on Saturday despite its suspension by the embattled premier this week as tens of thousands took to the streets for the 13th straight week to demand it be scrapped entirely. Um, so oh, this article is from the Middle East Eye, by the way. So beset by the domestic upheaval and expressions of concerns and disapproval in Washington, Netanyahu last Monday paused the overhaul to allow negotiations on a, comp on a compromise between his re religious nationalist coalition and opposition parties. Earlier, Netanyahu had announced that he was firing Defense Minister Yoav Gallant for calling for such a pause. The sacking had triggered a crippling general strike. So after he fired his defense minister, that really angered a lot of people. 
By Tuesday, representatives of most of Parliament's parties had begun talks at the residence of President Isaac Herzog to try to formulate legislation that would be acceptable to both sides on the political spectrum. Many political commentators and opposition figures have voiced skepticism about the chances of Herzog's mediation efforts with the coalition, saying it would complete legislation in the next parliamentary session if talks failed. Um, so it's still a big crisis for Netanyahu here. And again, maybe that could explain why they're really ramping up the airstrikes in Syria, um, trying to distract people, possibly. Uh, but it just... Uh, so is, Israeli media estimated that more than 150,000 people attended anti-government protests nationwide on Saturday. So it's pretty large. A lot of people are still protesting against Netanyahu. Uh, but that's it for the news. It was a bit slow over the weekend when it comes to the foreign policy stuff. Again, it's all mostly about Trump, all the news in the U.S., and when it comes to our viewpoints, we have a lot of good ones. As always, we have one from Ted Snyder, the war in Ukraine and how Africa surprised the West. One from John V. Walsh, Senate leaves the AUMF for secret wars in force. One from James North, why Palestinians are not joining the big anti-Netanyahu demonstrations in Israel. One from Craig Murray, the so far non-existent Vulcan leaks. And one from Daniel Arison over at Responsible Statecraft, centrist DC think tank, U.S. should threaten war, regime change in Iran. And this is the Center for a New American Security think tank, and they are no good. And a lot of those people are working in the Biden administration that came from that think tank. Uh, but that is everything. Um, you could always support us at antiwar.com slash donate, like and subscribe to the show on YouTube, leave comments. Leave reviews where you listen to podcasts. I appreciate all that stuff. It really helps a lot. Uh, but I'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.